Marini's Media. For the rest of this month, this month being September 2020, you can take out a subscription to The Athletic for the frankly ridiculous price of just £1 a month. That's unrivaled football writing and analysis from the very best people in the business, a brand spanking new breaking news service and ad-free versions of each Athletic podcast, all for just £1 a month. Go to theathletic.com slash totally to get started. Totally Football Show with the latest from a busy week in football. Today, we're asking, what's your favourite Liverpool arsenal? How hard is Brighton's clash with Man U? Tough, like taking a truck to Kent? Or more Italian exam in Perugia levels? Plus, background in a leather gimp suit and leaving a trail of destruction? Why Deadpool's Ryan Reynolds may fit into club ownership better than you think? It's all in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello, listener. It's Thursday, of course, 24th of September. That thing out there is autumn. And in here, it's a top, top panel ready to look ahead to round three of the Premier League season fixtures. We've got Black Country broadcaster and Wolves fan Lindsay Hooper. Hello, James. Up to Joe's Duncan Alexander's with us with his numbers. Hello, numbers and some letters. All right. And author and authority... Michael Cox. Hi, James. Since last we spoke, things have happened, football things. Villa beat Sheffield United 1-0 on Monday, and then Man City did Wolves 3-1, which meant the match day two of the season did break the goal-scoring record. Yes, 44. You know, the previous record was 43. Obviously, that's how records are broken. And uh, that was the 5th and 6th of February 2011, which I think most people will remember. It was the the weekend when Arsenal were 4-0 up at Newcastle and and happened to draw 4-4, which is the only time a team was blown a four-goal lead in Premier League history. The Czech-Tiote match. Yeah, yeah. I would say that was probably a more... Uh, exciting in some ways uh, weekend of games in terms of kind of famous results and, and turns and swings and stuff but um, but yeah I mean there's obviously a few theories as to why there's so many goals so far this season we're looking we're almost at sort of four goals a game on average which would obliterate the uh, the record there hasn't been more than three goals per game average since the 1960s so um, yeah I think it will it will slow down a bit but but maybe not yet Maybe not this weekend. Not just goals that are happening in record numbers. Uh, in kind of connected news, penalties have as well. There were eight in the last round of games, bringing us to a total of 13 in the two rounds of action so far. That's also a record. Is that right, Duncan? Briefly? Yeah, I mean, the record in a single season is 112. If it carries on at the current rate, we'll get 274, which nice. is <laughs> wow. higher. Right. Penalties everywhere, not just in the league. Michael, I know you were taken by the feast of penalties as uh, were to borrow Ollie Bayliss's term there in the clash between Aylesbury United and Moneyfields in the opening round of the FA Cup four penalties in the 90 minutes and then a penalty shootout but one in particular from Ollie Hogg uh, which was I think you can agree the expression blazed over no yeah I think the highest penalty I've ever seen just remarkable and the crowd reaction as well is fantastic <laughs> It's just people genuinely disgusted at what they've just seen. <laughs> but it is extraordinary. Noise. It literally travels at 45 degrees and then just disappears on that trajectory into the nighttime sky. Presumably still going. Amazing. <laughs> also, 
in the goals and happening midweek was the League Cup. You had Newcastle winning 7-0. That's their biggest away victory ever in a competitive match. It was against League 2 Morecambe. Chelsea only got six against Barnsley, but it did feature a hat-trick from Kai Havertz. And Arsenal beat Leicester 2-0, which means that if Liverpool beat Lincoln in the Cup this evening... It'll be a trip to Anfield for Arsenal next week. Or, in fact, two trips because they've got one in the Premier League on Monday. Yeah, and they played in the League Cup last year and it was one of the you know, underrated games of the season, I think. It ended 5-5. It was in that, that sort of period when uh, everything went a bit strange and, and Leicester had beaten Southampton 9-0 and then this game came along and you don't get many 5-5s either. So, something to potentially look forward to. All right, then. Well, League Cup. Still a bit mystified as to why it's happening, but it has been happening. All right, well, loads to talk about today, including how National League side Wrexham are going to line up under their new owner, Ryan Reynolds, if that goes through. Next up, though, we start our look ahead to the weekend in the Premier League. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Big weekend of action, listener, kicks off Saturday lunchtime. Brighton Man United, it concludes Monday with Liverpool Arsenal. Along the way, there are diverse treats such as Frank Lampard visiting the graveyard of Chelsea manager's dreams, that is West Brom. And also uh, the game which both Lindsay and Michael suggested is the one they're most looking forward to this weekend, uh, Crystal Palace, Everton. Why, Michael? Because both sides have started the season very well. I've enjoyed watching Everton and their new look front three. And uh, I was very impressed by the way Crystal Palace played at Manchester United. Um, and I think it'd be an interesting clash of styles. I think Palace usually want to sit deep and counter-attack and Everton, I think, with their new signings want to take the game to the opposition. Um, so, yeah, I think it'll be a good game overall and some interesting battles. Um, I think the, the young Palace left-back uh, Tyrick Mitchell has looked really good the first couple of games of the season. He'll be up against James Rodriguez, who has obviously made a fantastic start to his Everton career. So, yeah, it's it's nice when there's two sides who make a good start who aren't the kind of usual favourites for the title, I suppose. This is the first time, by the way, that Palace have ever started a top division season with two wins out of two. It's the first time that Everton have managed it since 1993. Is this just an early season blip or is there something more? How much faith can we put in these two teams' change of style? Well, in terms of change of style, I had a look at some of the numbers around Everton. They're actually the most accurate passing team in the Premier League so far this season, which surprised me. Um, I know it's only not even for some teams two games in, but they're, it, the top three for passing actually this season is Everton on 88, Arsenal just under 88, and then Aston Villa um, about the same as Arsenal. So, mm. you know, uh, City are fourth, Liverpool way down in, uh, in eighth. So, um, you know, it's obviously very dependent on who you've played and things like that. But, but yeah, Everton really have started they've kind of managed to combine you know control as that as that number shows but also with you know being clinical you know their conversion rates at 19 percent, which is twice as good as last season um and they're kind of playing to their strengths as well they're scoring headed goals you know historically that's what Everton do they're the most um reliant on headed goals team in Premier League history um you know and with Richarlison and Dominic Calvert-Lewin they can they can play that way 
And with Palace, I think Roy Hodgson famously is renowned for being very organised. Him and Ray Lewington get the side knowing what their jobs are. But he has had a depleted defence. So I've been really impressed with with how his midfield have looked, actually. I think McCarthy and MacArthur have really provided that protection to defence. And it's allowed players like Zahar to have that creative freedom and Townsend to go forward. And I think it's going to be really difficult now for Milivojevic to get his place back in the team. He's such a talented player, but I think that those two in midfield have just allowed that bit of freedom ahead on that attacking third for, for Palace to just be able to do this counter-attacking with Eze, an, a new player coming in that they're going to try and bed in over a period of time as well, who's very creative too. I think it's really exciting for Palace fans. They're really hoping to get a top half of the table finish and I think this season could be it. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of comment this week on social media about how uh, it was the 10-year anniversary of the time that Liverpool crashed out of the League Cup uh, to almost bottom of League Two, Northampton, and how far Liverpool have come. Of course, back then, that was during Roy Hodgson's brief tenure as Reds manager, during which he informed Liverpool fans that getting a win against Everton would be utopia. Are his prospects any better now that he's in charge of a proper side like Palace? I've pointed it out before, but Hodgson's got a very consistent kind of win rate at all the clubs he managed in the Premier League, which is which is fine when you're at West Brom or Fulham or Palace, it's around sort of 35%, um, because that will get you to where those teams want to be in the league. But the problem is if you do take over a team like Liverpool or you manage Blackburn when they were still kind of you know hoping to be title contenders, then that's not good enough. So, yeah, he, he does suit a, a, a club of, of Palace's size. Lindsay, you're going along to this game. I am. Um, I'm, I'm covering it for Prime Video. And I also am aware that there's quite a few players that Roy Hodgson now has available to bring back into the side. I'm wondering how many changes he's going to make. You know, Sacco's going to be available. I'm, I'm hearing as well that new signing Nathan Ferguson is starting to become um, more readily available in training. The, there's going to be players as well like Gary Cahill that he'll want to get back soon. And then you look at the, the attack of both teams. You know, Zahar's been in good form, but you look at Hamas... Uh, Rodriguez, Alan has been really good. He's slotted straight into this Everton side, hasn't he? He hasn't really needed much of a bedding in period. Uh, Richarlison, um, I think that he's got more goals in him. Calvert-Lewin off the back of a hat-trick. And you do think that there's going to be goals in this game. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. All right. Well, that's Palace Everton. Meanwhile, looking down on the rest of the league in a very real sense, are West Brom, because of course Hawthorne's highest ground in the league, 55 metres above <laughs> sea level. Although that's coming down all the time, I believe, with icebergs melting. And Is stuff. it? Well, yeah, because sea level... Have you measured it, though? Sea level's rising, Duncan. What does what happens, though? Do they catch everyone else up or does everyone else sink as well? Well, they just go underwater. I mean, that's the place... If, you, if you're looking for football matches post the icebergs going, that's going to be one of the few grounds Oh, yeah. West Brom available. are going to dominate the 22nd century. Mm. Anyway, West Brom are taking on Chelsea this Saturday evening. Could get to see some debuts here. This is going to be exciting, I think, though. Debuts like Thiago Silva, who was, was featured in the League Cup midweek. Edouard Mendy as well, the new keeper, who's five inches taller than Kepa. That sounds important. Uh, and he has now officially signed for Chelsea. How much excitement should uh, Chelsea fans feel about the 6-0 win uh, midweek over Barnsley? Not least for the fact that apparently thus uh, Lampard has sorted out the big Havertz question, Michael. <laughs> yeah, big crisis after two games where mm-hmm. he looked only quite promising. Yeah, um, it's exactly what I think 
big clubs think about these League Cup games. You know, it's uh, it's almost a gimme to get to the next round. It's a good opportunity to give minutes to players either on the, the fringes of the squad or coming back from injury or to give opportunities to players who need goals and need a bit of a confidence boost. So, yeah, I, I think uh, Havertz getting off the, off the mark is a positive. But, uh, yeah, we'll obviously want to be doing it in the Premier League rather than against uh, lower league opposition. I'm predicting more penalties in this game, more to add to Duncan's stats. Um, you've got a real ageing defence. We know that West Brom are pretty old when you when you take an average. I mean, if it wasn't for Deanne Garner, they're, they're quite an ageing side, aren't they, really? Um, and, and I just think that Timo Werner is going to cause them a lot of problems. He's already won a penalty in the opening game. I think he'll probably win, win more here, may, maybe Kai Havertz as well. Um, so I think more penalties to be awarded in this match. Mm, okay. Slavin Bilic and Frank Lampard were West Ham teammates, uh, by the way, in the late 90s, in that 96-97 West Ham side. This fixture, certain fixes kind of just live in your head as kind of fixtures you remember as quite good as well. And obviously Chelsea's last league title came uh, at the Hawthorns um, uh, with Batshuayi scoring a goal before they ever started a game for the club. Um, but even more memorable was a couple of years later, do you remember when um, Cesc Fabregas got sent off for smashing a ball against Chris Brunt? Um, I think the ball had gone dead. And whether in anger or, or otherwise, he, he kind of pinged the ball across the pitch and it just smashed Chris Brunt on the head and uh, he got sent off and Josie Marino was not happy. Wow. This fixture was also um, the, the final game for a couple of Chelsea managers. Now, there was a run when both Roberto Di Matteo and Andre Villas-Boas got the heave after slipping up at the Hawthorns. Will Frank be OK this time? And what's all this about Rudiger, Lindsay? Well, I mean, purely rumour-based at the moment, you you hear that Rudiger is wanting away from Chelsea. I, I guess with the influx of players coming in, he's wondering what his role is at the club. And I think Frank Lampard is probably suggesting that he's not the player that he's going to go with. Um, I don't know whether there's been something, uh, if you look on the rumour mill on Twitter and different social media, whether there's been something in training this week as well. Uh, so I wonder if he'll remain in this transfer window at the club. I don't really get what's going on with Chelsea's centre-back. It's like, Rudiger, maybe this seems like a personal issue, but I think he's close to being Chelsea's best centre-back. And I also don't really understand what happened with Tamori, who, I know he's still there, but there was suggestions that he was going to be loaned out. But whenever I see him play, he looks really composed, really comfortable, really good defender. Obviously, a lot of, uh, you know, room for him to grow at his young age as well. Yeah, I just don't understand the pecking order there. It seems strange to me. Hmm. Every match to you, you're scanning the team sheets, but Tomori never comes. Really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very good. Anyway, that's coming up on Saturday. Also on Saturday, the only game, Brighton against Man United. Uh, they'll also be clashing next week in the EFL Cup. There's a lot of that, isn't there, uh, this week, the last 16 of that competition. Brighton were 2-0 winners in the League Cup at Preston midweek having been 3-0 winners at Newcastle last weekend. However, at the Amex, their record is not so happy. They've only had one win in the Premier League at home in 10 matches in 2020. Crikey, that was against Arsenal way back when uh, last season restarted in June. So uh, is this going to be an easy fixture then for Man United or not? No, I don't think so at all. Um, I don't know whether Duncan and Michael agree. Well, Brighton have looked really good. They looked good against Chelsea and very unlucky to lose, I thought, in the opening match and then completely dominated Newcastle. Um, Manchester United, obviously, 
got through in the League Cup but had to bring on the big guns to do it. And, um, you know, that is their issue, I think, at the moment. Is You know, people complain that there's no rotation, really, from Solskjaer, but what's he going to rotate with, really? Um, I mean, interestingly, if they United do lose this game, it'll be the first time they've lost their opening two matches since 92-93. Um, obviously, they went on to win the league that season, but the second game of, of that was um, a home defeat to Everton, which is most memorable for Dion Dublin breaking his leg which in a very kind of sliding doors way led to United signing um, Eric Cantona. So, you know, losing your first two games. There's obviously other stuff that can, can come from that. So right. we'll wait and see. Interesting. I think it's the kind of game that suits Manchester United, to be honest. I mean, I've got a lot of reservations about the way that Solskjaer sets up his teams, but I think Brighton, because they're so intent on dominating the game and taking the game to the opposition, I think United will have a bit of freedom to play on the break and, and break into space. I was at the game between these sides last season at the Amex, which feels like it was only about three weeks ago. Um, and Bruno Fernandes just found so much space. Uh, right. You know, the, the speed of their attackers was really obvious against the side playing a high line without really very quick defenders. So I must say, this is the kind of game where I would fancy... I'd fancy United to win this more than at home to Burnley, for example. Or Palace, for example. Or Palace, um, but that seems a bit too obvious because I was just saying a fact there. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. But My- that that was the warning shot for them, the, the Palace match, I think. And I, I think they need to really learn from that. I mean, Fernandez did have uh, the joint most shots in that game, so he will find those pockets of space. But I do think Brighton look like a better outfit. And if you're going to compare with Crystal Palace, I think they're, they're going to be pushing them um, to try and get further up the table this season. There's a lot of players as well as Tarek Lamptey, which everyone's talking about, that have impressed me within the Brighton setup. You know, Ben White has been a good acquisition from Leeds, definitely. Uh, Trossard works so hard. Connolly, I think, always looks a bit of a danger, although he doesn't always start every match. But I do think Brighton have got some really good personnel. And, and Manchester United, by the way, they haven't won their first away league game in either of the last two seasons. So that's another warning for them. But, you know, they should, they should theoretically win this match. Will Lamptey be fit this weekend? And will Ole Gunnar Solskjaer be dusting off Aaron Wan-Bissaka from the bench after the way the defence crumbled without him last weekend? Possibly, although one of the reasons he was benched, I think, was that he had a particularly bad game in United's uh, Europa League match against Sevilla, which was obviously the the previous game. So they do have defensive issues, United. Um, I mean, for Brighton... Neil Mopay actually now looks like he can score goals, which I think is the big, big change from last year. I mean, I still, every time I hear his name, I think it's some sort of banking app. When nice. the commentator says Mopay, it's like, what? I oh, know. But, um, but yeah, he actually looks a bit sharper this season. So that's, uh, that's the positive. Mopay looking like a striker. Uh, Jacob Harbo wants to look alike. He says Ole Gunnar Solskjaer looks like Andy Serkis. I'm not going to disagree with Jacob on this. No, that's true, but... It was pointed out quite a lot, wasn't it, last year? I seem was to it? Remember. I think yeah, he'd have to be Jacob. elongated and like Mr. Stretch. Well, Andy Circus can really assume any shape or form you want. So it might be Andy Circus doing Oligonia Social this whole time, to be fair. We'll just never know. I mean, he is hanging on to something that, that happened quite a long time ago and protecting it very carefully, isn't he? So. Where are you going with this, Duncan? I don't know. <laughs> All right, then. Uh, Also on Saturday and rounding the day off in style, Saturday at 8 o'clock, you can find Burnley facing Southampton and probably enjoying it quite a lot, I should think, given Southampton's form so far. We will, of course, be reviewing all of those games in Monday morning's exciting Totally Football show. 
But next up, let's head off to Sunday's action. Oh, and also quickly talk about this Wrexham business. The Premier League's a little different, but at Paddy Power, we're trying to look at the upside. With Paddy Power's Acker Cracker, get a free bet if one leg of your four plus fold Acker lets you down on all football matches and all markets. Paddy Power! Max free bet £10, min odds 1 to 5 on each leg. Online exclusive exclude shop bets, T's and C's apply, 18 plus be gambleaware.org. Listener, the new season is here, and what better way to celebrate than watching a game with a couple of cold ones, courtesy of our pals at Beer 52. They want to give all Totally Football Show listeners a case of eight craft beers sourced and curated from the best breweries on the planet for free. All you have to do is head to beer52.com football and cover the cost of shipping, which is a mere $5.95. Beer 52 are beer pioneers working with small batch breweries from all over the world to bring you hoppy IPAs, crisp lagers and silky stouts from places like New Zealand, South Africa and even South Korea. You can choose a light, dark or mixed case and the best thing with Beer 52 is that there's absolutely no minimum commitment. If you want, you can just take this free case, try the beers and if you decide it's not for you, you can pause or cancel your subscription at any time. So head to Beer 52 52.com slash football and get your free case of eight craft beers today. That's the word beer and the number 52.com slash football. One last time, beer52.com slash football. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Listener, 2020 not surprising enough for you. Well, how about Ryan Reynolds buying National League side Wrexham? It's true, Wrexham are the subject of a takeover bid by the Deadpool and Detective Pikachu star Reynolds and the uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia creator Rob McElhenney. Oh, I'm touching myself tonight. Mm. The pair will put forward their vision, it says, for the club to members at a special general meeting. Any potential takeover could lead to £2 million, little finger in the corner of your mouth, being invested in the club, which has, of course, been in a kind of fan-shared ownership deal since 2011. Did you see the early results of the vote on it? No. So only 31 people were against. I think it was like pretty much unanimous to go well, for sure. it. I was wondering whether it was the Hollywood factor pull rather than the potential football ownership model. Well, I would think that the financial situation at that league, well, at every level, lower league club is is so perilous at the moment that you know getting your Deadpool money in is is handy. Right? Why though? Why? I've not been. I haven't to got a clue. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be any connection between Ryan and uh, the town of Wrexham or indeed the club. There's quite a lot of towns in in Wales with pool as a a suffix on there, I think. Mm. New documentary? Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting call, Lindsay. I'm not sure. A love of Robbie Savage and his origins? I don't know. Bootlegger fan? There's that that guy, isn't there? The Wrexham fan. I'm not sure who's that then. He kind of films himself. He was kind of big. He was kind of like the big thing pre twenty twenty pandemic era. So um, maybe there'll be some sort of Hollywood team up. If the takeover is successful, Reynolds and McElhenney will join a long list of celebrity owners of football clubs. You've got a couple of NBA players like LeBron James, who's got shares of Liverpool, and Steve Nash, who's 
who's bought a Mallorca with a consortium. Will Farrell as well. Did you know Will Farrell is one of the uh, the consortium that owns LAFC? There you go. All right, Michael, you're keen to move on. So let's leave Wrexham and turn our thoughts away from that glamorous locale to Sunday's action in the Premier League. What game, Michael Cox, do you want to start with here? You've got a Yorkshire derby with Sheffield United against Leeds, Spurs hosting Newcastle, Man City against Leicester, top of the table, Leicester, and West Ham Wolves. Michael? I kind of think West Ham Wolves is quite interesting, actually. Mm, why? Um, because I know it sounds ludicrous three games into the campaign, but I think West Ham probably need to win this. It's going to be their best chance of getting a win for quite some time. Their next game is away at Leicester, away at Tottenham, home to Manchester City and away at Liverpool. So if they don't win at home to Wolves, which is by no means a gimme because Wolves are a very good side, you think they probably might get to November the 7th when they're home to Fulham. Without a victory, and I think without that would... any points at all, possibly. Well, maybe, yeah. I mean, and that would exacerbate what seems a quite a well, a very negative situation. I think of all the clubs in the top flight, mood is at at its lowest at West Ham. So, I think the only way you can turn that around is with results. But I'm not sure I see a result on the horizon anywhere. What are you suggesting would happen if they weren't to win this? Well, nothing, I mean, nothing after this weekend. But I mean, uh, yeah, it's like I say, it's their best chance of winning for a very long time. So it feels like a pretty big game for West Ham, only three games into the season. Mm. There you go, Lindsay. Michael's calling your Wolves West Ham's best chance of winning. Look, you know, Wolves have faced West Ham four times. They've won all four matches without conceding a goal. I'll also add on to that, that as disappointing as the first half performance was against Manchester City... I think the second half performance, if we played that way, West Ham would really struggle. And also we were missing uh, a right back. And now we've we've bought one from Barcelona. So Semedo's come in. I, I, you know, these are very parallel universe times for Wolves fans when you're talking about buying players from Barcelona. I don't think this is the fixture for, for West Ham to get excited about I think it you know this is going to be a difficult fixture for them especially especially given past history like I've pointed out um and, and I, I just don't think the the way that they play suits them for for Wolves I think potentially for West Ham the biggest threat that they have is Antonio uh, going forward uh, maybe on a counter-attack against Wolves but I really think that this game is set up for a Wolves win Raul Jimenez has been in brilliant form he's got two goals in two um, there isn't even going to be a manager in the dugout is there with with uh, David Moyes testing positive for Covid so they're going to be missing him uh, in the dugout as well he's going to be managing remotely isn't he I think I think he probably will. Uh, Moyes and Issa Diop and uh, Josh Cullen all tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, West Ham receiving the test results just before kickoff in their midweek League Cup game against Hull, which they won 5-1. But yeah, you'd imagine he'll have to be isolating for, uh, I assume, two weeks or so, which isn't, you know, banter aside, going to help much uh, at West Ham in this difficult time. Well, if they win... Right. Then he might decide that remote managing... I mean, a lot of people have started working remotely from home, haven't they? Imagine if Moyes becomes the first work-from-home Premier League manager. Could be, it literally could be a, a revolution in football management. Right. It could be. Uh, how would it... No, no, I mean, it, you could follow Twitter, for example, and you know, implement the decisions yeah, he via could, some form like, of... follow our friend Benji Lanyardo's Twitter feed and be like, oh, yeah, that's, that's an interesting tactical idea and, and implement them like that. So, mm. you know. Well, okay. he'll, he'll, he'll get a better view of the game, won't he? I mean, he'll get the actual television 
footage. Mm. I mean, I, I think the single strangest thing about football in the modern age is that managers insist on standing on the touchline, where you get an absolutely dreadful view of what's going on. Well, do you remember in the 80s and 90s, you'd get managers who would go up for the first half and they would mm. talk to their bench on a kind of really elaborate sort of landline system um, and then they'd go down for the second half. Um, yeah, I mean, Sam Allardyce was doing it at Bolton, wasn't he? He had a kind of uh, headset on and he was asked why he, <laughs> he was asked why he didn't do that anymore and his answer was essentially he liked intimidating the fourth official. So um, that is that is one reason. But yeah, I've been a little bit surprised actually with the with the lack of fans in the ground. Why men just don't just take the opportunity to just walk up twenty steps and watch it from a better vantage point? And if they want to communicate to the players, which I think is probably overrated in itself, then they can walk down and, and have a chat to them. But yeah, I mean, obviously, as as journalists, sometimes we're in press boxes right behind the dugouts, and some of the grounds you just. I mean, it's not there anymore, obviously, but the old White Hart Lane, we were sat right behind the managers at the same height. And if the ball was on the far side of the pitch, you actually couldn't see the ball mm. because of the curvature of the pitch. So it always strikes me as slightly odd you'd want to coach aside from that position. Yeah, it's always troubled me as well, but I, I do think that the physical presence, the comforting presence of their manager on the sideline, whether it's indeed comforting or or perhaps at times intimidating, is probably the reason they do it. A feeling that they need to be there representing, as well as, you know, trapping any stray balls and exhibiting the fact that they've still got it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure that West Ham players are very comforted by the sight of David Moyes on the on the touchline when they go 1-0 down. Right, OK. Um Lindsay, you touched on the transfer business that Wolves have been up to of late. Yeah. It's crazy times, isn't it? Isn't it a crazy world where, you know, Spurs sign our right back. Yeah. We sign a right back from Barcelona and Barcelona is signing a right back from Norwich. Right. So yeah. you sold Doherty and then bought Semedo for about twice that amount or it with for a deal that could rise to about twice the amount you got for Doherty? Yeah, uh, there's been a lot made of this on social media, actually. I mean, he is three years younger. A lot of people are saying, oh, this is a bad business deal. But if you actually collectively look at uh, the transactions that Wolves have done, um, there's about £1 million that we've spent in this transfer window. There's £100 million gone either way. But when you look at the business that's been done by selling Jota and, and others, for example... Um, the money that's come in, um, we've only actually ended up spending £1 million. So it it amounts to good business overall, I think. So you sold Jota, you've brought in uh, Fabio Silva, you've sold yeah. Doherty, you've brought in Nelson Semedo. Is the team any stronger as a result of this? Much this stronger, yeah. Spent? Yeah, because yeah, you've got Marcel as well, who's come in, um, although he has picked up an injury at the moment. So that's quite concerning. But I think in every area where we've bought in, and I don't think it's even about the the activity. I think it's the non-activity that's spoken volumes. The fact that Jimenez is still at the club, Neves is still at the club, Traore stayed put, and Nuno signed a, a longer term deal. I think those are the things that, that are going to be really welcome for, for Wolves fans. Um, so that puts us in a stronger position I think mm. um, and yeah I, I, I've, I've said it and I've tried to downplay it but I, I just think that Wolves are a top six side I, I really do for this season and we'll see Have they not you say they're much stronger I mean I, I haven't seen Fabio Silva play but he's obviously a young guy who's who's supposedly going to become good but surely that's in this season you'd be surprised if he matched Jota's output wouldn't you? I would, especially when you when you look at the data around Jota's movement. And I think in terms of what Klopp can do with Jota, 
his expected goals in terms of then converting them, I think he can do a lot, Jota, going forward. And he's very young, of course. But Fabio Silva's one for the future. But what you're what you're missing is Neto, Pedro Neto and Pedence that were already there. Pedence has already has already substituted the assists already this season to compared to what Jota had got by this time last season. So we've already got those substitutes in place. I think Silva's really more one for the future and bringing through and potentially a Jimenez replacement for the future when he does eventually leave the club. Mm. Well, potentially a difficult evening's viewing for David Moyes from his front room on Sunday as West Ham host these exciting Wolves. Earlier that day, Spurs, who had their League Cup game against Leighton Orient uh, postponed earlier this week after an outbreak of covid at Orient, uh, will be hosting Newcastle. Spurs, of course, do have their Thursday night trip to Macedonia uh, to deal with. Uh, will we see Bale and Regalon here, do you think? We won't see Bale, will we? I mean, he's, he's going to be out for some time. Right, OK. Newcastle, meanwhile, beat Morecambe 7-0 in the League Cup. They won this fixture last season. It was the game in which Joe Linton scored his first goal for Newcastle and his second was to follow... Oh, 142 days later. Right. What do you make of them this time around? Because uh, they've only had two shots on target so far, both against West Ham. They scored with both, but then failed to actually get anything on target against Brighton last Sunday. Dark times ahead? Uh, I thought they were pretty poor against Brighton. Um, they've been playing this 4-4-2 system, which seems very old school. Wilson and Carroll up front. Um, it seems to have been a bit of a resurgence since I was playing 4-4-2, but they do it in... I'd say slightly modern way, you know, that the forwards drop very deep and that allows the midfield and the defence to stay tight. Newcastle felt like a system from the 1990s. And I mean, Graham Potter must have been licking his lips in the first couple of minutes there because there's so much space out wide, so much space between the lines, so much space in behind. It was quite incredible. And obviously Brighton won the game after 10 minutes. Um, I think Tottenham will be strong favourites for this one. Um, Yeah, I actually quite like how... Tottenham is shaping up. Um, I thought the performance last weekend was really encouraging in the second half against Southampton and uh, I can imagine Son causing more problems here. Right, because uh, people were very concerned about Jose Mourinho and the way that Spurs were looking under him and then the second half convinced you why, Michael? Well, not just the second half, but the two signings as well. I mean, I think Regulon, not sure whether he's going to play this weekend, but their weakest position, I think, was left back. I mean, Ben Davis, with all due respect, I think, probably with the exception of Kepper is uh, probably the weakest regular for any of the top six. I just, I don't think he's particularly solid defensively. I don't think he's particularly good going forward on the ball. Um, so that's a big upgrade. And Bale is, you know, I say this as someone who's struggled to get excited by Gareth Bale over the years. I think there's something slightly kind of robotic and detached about the way he plays football. But it is quite nice that after, a, you know, a few years at Real Madrid where he's been on the on the fringes and not really shown any love by the manager or the supporters, he's going to be coming back to, albeit empty stadiums, but come back into an environment where he's just really appreciated. And I think it's quite exciting what he can, uh, what he can do with Spurs this year. All right, Sunday at two o'clock. It's the first Yorkshire derby in the Premier League in 19 years. Isn't that right, Duncan? Sort of, yeah. I mean... I always get scared about Yorkshire for a number of reasons, to be honest. But um, <laughs> it's very difficult to because Middlesbrough are technically a Yorkshire club, although some Middlesbrough fans, yes, yeah, in North Yorkshire, but some fans won't class them as a Yorkshire club, and yeah, so I'm I'm steering clear. But what we do know is that the last time these teams met in the Premier League, um, 
around 300,000 people had access to the internet in the UK. Um, and about that many people send tweets now every time Leeds score because they seem to be very, very active. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think Sheffield United are the Leeds of, of last season in a sense. And, you know, they came up and were a bit different and everyone enjoyed them. And I think it's going a little bit awry so far for Sheffield United. And they were my kind of outside possibilities to struggle a lot more than people expected this season. They're on a five-match losing streak in the Premier League, if you include the last three games of last season. They've lost the first two in this campaign. What's going on there then, Michael? I don't know, but I just, I mean, on the Yorkshire Derby thing, I wouldn't argue with Duncan because he once very proudly told me that he'd been to every county in England, which I was really impressed by. How many counties are there? It's like quite a lot. I mean, are we still including Kent or is that off the list now? (laughs) That's a separate entity now, yeah. (laughs) So Leeds have had seven goals in both their fixtures so far. Do you fancy them to manage that with Chris Wilder this time? I think this could be really exciting, actually. Obviously, the two sides who have been most eagerly anticipated when they've come up in the last couple of seasons, they both play a very, very unique style for the Premier League. Sheffield United, we know about the overlapping centre-backs and the overloads down wide areas. Leeds with the man marking without the ball. I think um, think it shows the, the strength and depth, if you like, of the Premier League this season. The fact that there's... You know, a game between two sides who probably going to be mid-table at best, um, but could be the most exciting of the weekend. I think it's, uh, yeah, great start to Sunday. We should praise Patrick Bamford as well, because, I mean, last season he had the the biggest underperformance in terms of XG I've ever seen um, <laughs> in the Championship. He should have scored like about 30 goals in XG and, and didn't get anywhere near that. But coming to the Premier League, he's only had three shots and scored with two of them. So he's com- like completely reversed the trend. Um, obviously, that's not going to continue for the whole season. But I think a lot of people, including Leeds fans, were, were wondering whether he'd sort of fall away this season. But he started really well. He is on course as well to be the first player for Leeds to score in the first three top flight games for, for Leeds United, along with Click. So if either of them score in this match, they'll have scored in the t- in the first three games in the top flight. Excellent. Now, a little later, across the Pennines, in Manchester, City take on Leicester, who are top of the table. Here's a stat. City, who of course beat Wolves 3-1 uh, on Monday, have been at least two goals up at half-time in each of their last six Premier League games. Wow. That's a record in the competition, not surprisingly. Do you foresee, especially when you hear... Brendan Rodgers announcing that Ndidi could be out for the Foxes for quite some time. Do you fancy uh, City to make a, a similar start this time around? Yeah, I think they were so impressive against Wolves, actually. Um, they they started brilliantly. Um, and anyone who was watching thinking they might have had a bit of the Manchester United's about them by having that week delay, um, they, they were completely the opposite. Um, so I, I think that City will dominate this match. Um, I think Leicester have started well, but I think this could be the one that really highlights where they are this season. Although I would say, as Wolves exploited in that game, City's defence still doesn't look particularly watertight and they have had issues against Leicester in the past. Um, Jamie Vardy remains the only player to score a a league hat-trick against a a Guardiola team. So, yeah, I mean, it's not been the easiest fixture for them. I mean, if Leicester win... Um, it's going to be the first time they've won their opening three games in any division since, um, you might remember this, the British archaeologists discovered Tutankhamun's tomb. Um, and that might sound fanciful, but Lord don't forget Carnarvon. Leicester. Was it? I think it was. 
It would be also their first victory at the Etihad since the 3-1 they had in 2016, which was equally historic because that was part of the, the campaign which saw them actually crowned champions. Well, yeah, lost. We obviously remember from that season the, the Richard III angle, you know, and they, they finally buried Richard III in the correct right. manner and Leicester went on and won the league. So they are possibly the most connected with, Dead with history. Yeah. Exactly. I know, Duncan, that you're pointing out about Vardy, and, and rightly so, he has got this great record against Manchester City. But flipping that around, Jesus has got a great record against Leicester as well. I mean, he's scored four of his five Premier League appearances against them, hasn't he? So I thought mm. he looked sharp as well against Wolves. Well, he was very much the Premier League Patrick Bamford in, in terms of kind of wasting good opportunities last season and, you know, started this season with a goal. So maybe he's going to do the same. So, yeah. Mm. Phil Foden also on the score sheet in that Wolves game. Michael, just briefly, the Ndidi absence was uh, pointed to by a simplistic vote like me last season when trying to explain the massive difference between Leicester's form uh, in the early part and then the way that they fell a- a- away. Do you think that Brendan will have something up his sleeve for this absence, if indeed there is to be an extended one? No, I mean, I do think he's a really important player for the way that they play. No, I agree with you. I mean, the, the rest of the midfielders are very forward-thinking um, and I think he's just a really good all-round player, not just the defensive side of things, but I think his quality in possession, he's able to dribble forward, which you don't see much from defensive midfielders, and I think he just links the side really well. So, no, I agree with you. I think if he's out, that's a big loss. Where are you with the whole Phil Foden-David um, Silver comparisons? Because it's driving me mad. I don't think that he's just this replacement for David Silver. I think they're completely different players. Oh, there have been loads of different articles saying that, you know, yeah, Phil Foden's going to be the new David Silver at Manchester City. And I think especially off the back of that performance um, this week, you know, it's, it's always going to be that comparison. And I, I just don't understand it sometimes. Yes, he's made way for him, but... The interesting thing with Foden is that he's showing like a goal-scoring trait that I don't think people necessarily saw before. You know, he's got as many goals, league goals this year as Neymar. Um, you know, maybe he, you know, he'll actually work more in a front three going forward. There you go. Uh, still to come, thoughts on Monday's humdinger at Anfield as Liverpool take on Arsenal. Listeners, how's your hairline doing in this fine year of 2020? Well, despite being from a long line of follically challenged males, I am, at the age of 40, still blessed with a full head of hair, with no need for a Jack Charlton comb-over or any evidence of a looming Attilio Lombardo situation up top. Now, some of you may not be so lucky, and some of you may not wish to rock the look that our very own James Richardson has perfected over the last two decades. So that's where Hims comes in. Hims provides an easy-to-use, trustworthy and science-backed service for men suffering from hair loss, helping men to be the very best versions of themselves by connecting them with licensed healthcare providers to help with hair loss problems. With Hims, there are no more awkward in-person doctor visits or hushed conversations at the pharmacy. You get a proper online appointment and some sound advice on what you can do to help your hair before it's too late. All you have to do is head to 4hims.co.uk slash athletic to start your free consultation today and check out the full details and all their safety information. That's 4hims, F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot co.uk slash athletic. One more time, 4hims.co.uk slash athletic. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Monday, listeners, he's Fulham hosting Aston Villa at Craven Cottage and also <laughs> Liverpool welcoming Arsenal <laughs> Duncan to <laughs> Anfield. 
Sorry, I just keep thinking of that quote. <laughs> All right, we were just discussing because, as we mentioned earlier on, the the uh, the fact that Liverpool ten years ago were in a very different place, busy crushing out the League Cup and 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 with Roy Hodgson as their manager and in the relegation zone at times, and also within a unique lineup which featured the likes of Joe Cole, not my signing, as as Roy Hodgson explained, uh, Christian Poulsen and Paul Konchesky, whose mother caught a controversy with a Facebook post in which she called Liverpool's fans scouse scum, uh, suggested they should stop living off the past and revealed that she and her family would not be moving to Merseyside because we don't like the way they talk. Right. She didn't hold back then, did she? She certainly didn't. Anyway, that, that was, was the then. season uh, mm. Stephen Gerrard said he'd seen Joe Cole do stuff with a tennis ball that Messi couldn't do. Um, I'm not sure <laughs> what. <laughs> Truly. Sorry, um, um, am I missing it? What's the relevance to the present day? Just that Duncan was laughing about it, so we just kind of went back to mention. Yeah, I know, but like, what, what, why is it? Why is this relevant? So this, this all came to this kind of resurfaced because this week somebody pointed out, I think on Monday or Tuesday, that ten years ago today, Liverpool under Hodgson were crashing out of the League Cup against Northampton, and look where they are ten years on. And there you go. Okay. So I went back to look at where they were 10 years ago, and it is remarkable. You had that extraordinary... Do you remember the protest video with Ian McCulloch out of Echo and the Bunnymen? Yeah, but yeah. I mean, like, I'm almost going to say that Paul Koncheski's mum's got a point here. Why are we just talking about 10 years ago all the time? Well, they won the league. Surely, surely we can move on now. The, that's the point, Michael. <laughs> just 10 years later, they're champions of the world. Just 10 years later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, well, let's talk about then what the world champions Liverpool uh, are going to be doing on Monday as they take on Arsenal. This is the meeting, the second in short succession of, of last year's FA Cup winners, Arsenal and the league champions Liverpool. They're both off to excellent starts, two wins out of two. This, though, is their third meeting in three months with Arsenal having won the first two clashes, one of them on penalties. Can they do it in the league, though? I think it'll be a tougher assignment. I mean, the victory over Liverpool in the league, I think, was slightly fortunate. It came against a Liverpool side who didn't look on top of their game. They'd already won the league. Arsenal scored a couple of goals from, I guess you can say, pressing high up the pitch. But I think more than anything, just Liverpool sloppiness. And then Arsenal really just defended last ditch for 60, 70 minutes. Um, I think if they play that way again, which I don't think they will, but I think if they did, they would probably lose the game. The Community Shield win was probably more relevant here. That felt like bit more of a, uh, a proper game. But I still have Liverpool's strong favourites. Um, interested to see what system Arteta uses. I mean, he, he uses a shape that kind of looks like a back four at some points and looks like a back three at other points. I would think they probably more want to be a back four here. I just think defending three against three against those Liverpool wide forwards could be really dangerous. Um, but yeah, it should be a really interesting game. I love finding two stats that completely contradict each other. You can sort of find something in either of them. So if you're a Liverpool fan, you can find something. If you're an Arsenal fan, you can find something. So uh, for Arsenal fans, only three top flight fixtures have seen more defeats for reigning champions than the 16 between Arsenal and Liverpool because Arsenal have had 10 victories over the Reds. So, um, So that would give them some encouragement. But then... On the other hand, if you're a Liverpool fan, Arsenal are actually winless in their last six Premier League games against reigning champions. <laughs> so it's you, you look at stats and you can really turn them either way. Uh, here's two stats, which good luck trying to turn these around. Arsenal haven't won at Anfield for eight years. Liverpool are unbeaten there in 60 home games 
in the Premier League. Woof. That's the big thing now in terms of kind of runs. Liverpool's, you know, Chelsea have got that really, the record, and Liverpool are slowly closing in on it. Um, You know, as we've discussed many times, the last manager to come to Anfield and and beat them was Sam Allardyce um, in some snakeskin shoes. So I'm not sure what Mikel Arteta will be wearing uh, on Monday night, but maybe that's a little tip for him. It seems to be consensus, Michael, that Arsenal, this Arsenal, are more of a danger to big six opponents, and certainly the clashes against Liverpool and, say, Man City seem to illustrate that. Tactically, how do you think Arteta, who was in the last Arsenal side to actually win there, in, in what way do you think he might derail Klopp's side? Like I say, I think I, I would be surprised if he played three against three all the time because I think that will uh, will expose the wide centre-backs to the runs of the the wide forwards. Um, I, look, I think there's there's been a, a big shift in terms of just how Arsenal play in possession. I think they're more structured than I've ever seen them. Um, they don't just take the game to the opponents and leave themselves open in midfield in general, as I think they often did under Arsene Wenger. Um, yeah, they're, they're just to me, there seems more organisation and more structure to the side than ever before. And I think that's proving particularly uh, useful in games against big opponents. I think Arsenal, almost in the stage that Klopp's Liverpool were at maybe three years ago and Solskjaer's Manchester United maybe 18 months ago, where sometimes you're more confident when they're playing the big sides than at home to the smaller sides. I mean, Arsenal against West Ham, I thought, was an absolutely dreadful performance and they did really quite well to get away with a 2-1 victory in a game they could have lost. And there was other games towards the back end of last season where I thought against smaller sides, they're a little bit weak. So I think it's probably more to come in terms of the possession play against sides uh, sitting deep. But uh, yeah, they have looked good against Liverpool and City and of course Chelsea in the cup final as well. I think Arteta's actually been quite clever and he's actually used Arsenal's recent reputation um, to help his team. So, you know, teams are less scared of kind of attacking Arsenal now than they would have been five or ten years ago. Um, and he's actually using that to kind of, you know, quickly break. And they particularly use the left flank. Obviously, Aubameyang's had a lot of joy cutting in and scoring. And, you know, for Liverpool, Trent Alexander-Arnold can get caught out of position a bit. So that's, you know, possibly an area of concern for Liverpool. And what's allowing them to do that as well is having a quality goalkeeper in Leno. You know, he is saving them points already this season. He's made some outstanding saves and I, I think he will uh, be that difference between between them maybe getting another 10 points this season. OK. Such a rich tradition between uh, these two clubs. Do you have a favourite Liverpool-Arsenal memory from oldie times? Duncan, uh, you're nodding. Yeah, mine would probably be the 1989 Makita tournament at Wembley. Um <laughs> funny I got taken there as a small child um, because my dad knew someone at Makita power tools um, and it was Liverpool Arsenal in the final and I don't remember the game but I do remember being in the official bar area afterwards and all the all the teams were in there which was for I was really excited um, and uh, John Barnes had the first mobile phone I ever saw like an enormous suitcase in 89 yeah he was wow. at the bar talking on the phone and I was just like, this is really cool. And then I got laughed and jeered at by the Liverpool squad because I went round to get some autographs, as as was the style at the time. And um, I got to the end and there was this grey-haired man in a suit who I ignored. And it turned out to be Glenn Hussain just before he signed officially for the club. And they all laughed at me and said, you don't realise who this is. Which, thinking back, of course I didn't know what Glenn Hussain looked like, especially in a suit. So, yeah. 
Crikey, Duncan. Uh, mm. Maybe they were cheering more at him for not being known to, you know... The... Yeah, possibly, but mm. I remember But at the quite... time, it must have burned, like... That's extraordinary. Well, he, yeah, Do you remember which players, which players particularly picked on you on that? I think Ian Rush, uh, yeah. But, I mean, you know, not, not cruelly, but as a small child, I was a little bit intimidated. And, again, it coloured my view of Glenn Hussain for many years. Mm. Duncan, that's an extraordinary story. Uh, and well done for, you know, becoming the fully formed and, 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 and <laughs> functioning adult <laughs> before us today. Um, was that Makita Cup, was it before or after the other Liverpool Arsenal in 89? It was in, in the summer, so it was just after. So the, right. the Arsenal won the final 1-0. Um, so, yeah, wow. that was... They had yeah, Liverpool's rubbing. number back then, didn't they? Mm. All righty. Have you got a, a, a favourite Liverpool Arsenal from back in the day, Lindsay? Uh, I mean, the ones that spring to mind are always the, the high-scoring ones because as a neutral, you just want to see lots of goals. So there was the Arshavin um, 2009 when he scored four. He's played in. Arshavin. He's done it! Four! And then the invincible season when um, Thierry Henry got his hat-trick in that game. That was That was pretty good. Um, but I mean, they're, they're always a really great game to watch. There are certain fixtures that you always make sure that you sit down and watch. And Liverpool Arsenal is one of them. The Merseyside derby is another. North London derby is another one. But yeah, this is up there. This is the sort of rivalry that you don't want to miss. Um, yeah, I, I think this one's better than the, the Merseyside yeah, the, derby usually. That, the that Merseyside one derby is awful, isn't it, generally? Producer Charlie mentions one that broke his young heart. Uh, it was the Champions League quarterfinal from 2008. Theo Walcott going on that incredible run where he takes on the entire Liverpool team before giving it to Adebayor, who uh, scores and Arsenal is set for the semi-final. And Charlie's off in the, the kitchen of some establishment, wildly celebrating with the staff. When he gets back to his seat, how surprised he was to discover that Liverpool had won a penalty straight from kickoff and Arsenal weren't going to any semi-finals. Thank you very much. I know you're not into the past, dwelling in the past, Michael, but is there a, a, a Liverpool Arsenal that lives in your heart? Yeah, probably the pair of nil-nil draws between them in 1998-99, two uh, really riveting clashes. No, uh, probably the cup final 2001, I remember, like, obviously Michael Owen completely turned the game, Arsenal completely dominated that and uh, probably should have been out of sight and Owen scored two great goals in the last seven or eight minutes, I think. Owen, stretching his legs and getting away from Dixon and getting his shot away, I say, that is just absolutely fantastic. He has won the cup for Liverpool all by himself. Which uh, contributed to him winning the Ballon d'Or, which uh, I think often gets forgotten. No English player in my lifetime has has ever won the Ballon d'Or and probably won't for a while. So, uh, yeah, that was when Owen almost became the best player in Europe. Dirk Cowart scored the latest goal in Premier League history in this fixture. Actually, it wasn't in this fixture. It was down at uh, the Emirates, wasn't it? But It was in the 100... 102nd minute, so pretty special anyway. Well, there you go. And what time is that coming up on Monday? It's now 8 o'clock, not 8.15 for anyone who is thinking of sitting down late. You know why this is, don't you, James? Because of the 10 o'clock rule about pubs and restaurants closing at 10. But why does that affect a football match with no spectators? Pubs. Because people can still watch in the pubs, which is making Ah. me mad. Because why can't we have fans in stadiums if people can watch in the pub? When stadiums True. are bigger, also, bigger venues. As we've just pointed out, Dirk Kautz going in the 102nd minute, it could still be going, even with an 8 o'clock kickoff. So let's hope. 
Yeah, the 102nd minute one, you'd definitely miss, wouldn't you? Yeah, it's it's a good thing, I think, because I don't think a, a football match should ever extend into past the start of the 10 o'clock news unless it's what? extra time. <laughs> That's just a rule for me. Football should be over by 10pm, then you watch the news, then news night if you fancy it and go to bed. You can't have football going on at 20 past 10. A glimpse into the rock and roll lifestyle of Michael Cox there. Well, what do you want me to do? Go to a pub after 10pm? 10, 10 you literally can't, can you? You literally well, not can't. now, but you... Uh, that is my doorbell going, one second. Did you hear All that right. nice little jazzy tune? Yeah. It's probably just a parcel. Lindsay's gone for the old, oh, it's my doorbell routine to escape <laughs> that one. Uh, let's move on then. Uh, let's get some odds now from Lee Price on some of the fixtures coming your way. Hello, hello, and welcome to the highlight of the show, for my mother anyway, who must be the only person who skips to this section rather than past it. Love you, Mum. And speaking of matriarchs, both Chris Wilder and Marcelo Bielsa kind of remind me of my nans, and they're going head-to-head this weekend, the managers, that is. Forget bringing back player cam. This might be worth introducing manager cam for. Plus, Bielsa's one just needs to be fixed at bucket height, so easy. Uh, Time for some numbers, probably. Really? They're slightly confusing on this one, I have to warn you, although I am easily perplexed. Sheffield United are priced at 13 to 8 to win the game. Leeds are priced at 8 to 5. Now, I've Googled those fractions, and that means Paddy Power make Leeds the favourites to win this game by about 0.4%. Yikes. Elsewhere, we've got the Battle of the Silver Foxes, Roy Hodgson wrestling, Carlo Ancelotti, and a big bucket of wingers. Lovely. Anyway, sorry. We are absolutely on the Everton bandwagon, and they're the even money favourites to win this. Palace are 13 to 5, and I don't fancy them here, but then again, I fought that for their last two league games, so that just shows I'm an idiot. And finally, just quickly, well run Wolves take on less well run West Ham, allegedly, with the exact same odds as the Palace Everton game. So that means visitors Wolves are evens to win this one, and that stinks of value. See you later. Oh, and mum, I'll be round on Sunday with the children. Date night in it. Thanks again. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. That was someone selling windows. You're kidding. And I've got brand new windows. So wow. why did they even bother ringing my because doorbell? Because probably you're on a mailing list when you <laughs> your, your data's probably been... Glaze has ruined the football as yeah. usual. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that was brilliant. Nice one. Uh, has the fun stopped for you with the transfer window, Lindsay? No, uh, because it's obviously open till the 5th of October and I was just keeping an eye on on possible moves that are happening. Um, one of the fixtures we didn't do too much on was Burnley against Southampton. And I thought one of the players that Burnley could be acquiring is the most Burnley player I could have imagined. There's certain players that move that you'd think they just suit that club. And it's Dale Stevens from Brighton. Don't you think that he's just so Burnley a player, Dale Stevens? Yeah, I mean, another interesting thing maybe going into the Premier League weekend is that there still hasn't been a single draw so far no. in the season. If yeah. I had to pick a draw, I think I'd probably go for Burnley Southampton. Was that right? You can cast your pool's picks at home. <laughs> yeah, all right. Then. <laughs> well, the transfer window, as you say, is still very much open and it saw a couple of big moves actually this week as, uh, as we were talking about on Tuesday and has now been confirmed. Luis Suarez has joined Atletico Madrid to link up there with uh, Diego Costa. And uh, Alva Morata has uh, rejoined Juventus on loan, uh, where, of course, he had a very happy time, particularly in the, the Champions League previously. But what a lot of fuss then uh, Luis Suarez's Italian exam was for nothing. A five uh, University of Perugia 
employees have, have now been uh, charged or have now been officially notified that they're under investigation over the whole business because there were a whole, whole bunch of wiretaps of conversations where they essentially arranged what score he was going to get and all that kind of thing before he actually sat the exam. Hmm. Here's a question from Mr. Podge. Mr. Podge says... Would a rule change where keepers can't be offside spice up the game? Keepers would be encouraged to go up late in the game, but then forced to scramble back more. Yeah, I think it's a great suggestion. Maybe not just to late in the game. I mean, maybe you could do it from the outset and just really confuse the opposition. I remember doing some book research a, a couple of years ago, looking at Peter Schmeichel and his impact in English football and came across uh, when he scored a bicycle kick away at Wimbledon, I think in the League Cup. That was really? disallowed for offside. And I thought that must be the first time a goalkeeper has ever been caught offside in English football history. Because I don't think I don't think goalkeepers went up late on. I reckon before they changed the rule to you can only handle the ball in the penalty box, you would have got keepers been caught offside if they'd strayed into the opposition half. Catching the ball in the opposition half? Well no, they could handle it up to the halfway line. So they oh, must have right. they must have gone into the opposition half occasionally and then possibly would have got caught offside. No, we'll never I, th- know. I think that's far fetched. I don't know why they'd be doing that. To get well, caught offside. I, I appreciate they might be as far as the halfway line and then might, was, they might end up a, sweeping out into the opposition half, but then to remain No, there was a there was a the turn field. of the century keeper, right, whose special move I think he played for Sheffield United, his special move was basically bouncing the ball like almost like a basketball player up to the halfway line and then knocking it and, and sprinting on. So I reckon he definitely got caught offside. I think there'd be some interesting tactics there though, because I think there's a chance that if you were Manchester City, mm. maybe you could just name Sergio Aguero as your goalkeeper. And then he would wear the goalkeeper shirt, could play up front. It's quite short. Yeah, but I would I would gamble. I'd I'd think that the benefit you get from having Sergio Aguero in behind the opposition defence would be compensated for the fact that you could just not play a goalkeeper in goal. You could just play Laporte as your goalkeeper. Okay, he can't use his hands, but I think you'd you'd get enough value from Aguero's freedom in behind the opposition defence to make up for it. <laughs> you get very high scoring matches. Probably break the record. 45 goals next week. <laughs> Have you got a name for us, Duncan? Yeah, he was called Lee Roos. Um, he was well known as a footballing eccentric. Played for a lot of clubs, actually. Stoke, Everton, Sunderland, Huddersfield, Villa. Um, but yeah, he had a special move. And and I think he would have got caught offside. OK, what era was this, sorry? Um, he played around the turn of the century, mainly. Um, right. It's always sad when you see this on Wikipedia. Date of death, 1916. Place of death, Somme, France. It's like, mm. Mm. My word, what what an extraordinary uh, story. And indeed, life uh, Lee Rass appears to have had. That's a a remarkable little detail. Many thanks, Mr. Podge, for your tweet as well. That brings us to the end of today's Totally Football Show. Thanks a lot to Lindsay, to Michael and Duncan and producer Charlie for putting the whole thing together. And you, listener, we're back Monday morning with our thoughts on the weekend's action. I do hope you join us then. For now, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. 
Media.